regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Listeners, this is Datacast, where I hold long-term conversation with data practitioners and researchers to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Jessica Troni, who's currently running a one-woman data analytics team at Ironclad, which is a Series D digital contracting startup. Uh, as part of her job, Jessica builds out the data analytics function and provides analytics and data insights to inform business decision for the product, customer success, engineering, sales, marketing, and operations organization. Prior to joining Ironclad, she graduated from UC Berkeley as part of the university first cohort of data science majors. Outside of work, Jessica is passionate about data mentorship and founded Data Angels, which is a Slack community of women in data that provides resources, support, job opportunities, education, and community to its members. So Jessica, glad to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Oh, fabulous. From doing homework for our conversation, I found out that you were born in a triplet with two other sisters and grew up in an immigrant family from Russia. And so uh, would you mind sharing some of the formative experiences of your upbringing? Yeah. Just a big way to kind of narrow down that experience is hustle and grind. My parents immigrated here at a very young age, the same age that I currently am now in their early 20s, and had to basically start all over immigrating to a new country where they were highly educated folks in Russia, but you know didn't learn English as well or as fast as they could have, and had to subsequently start from the bottom in America, where... They had to work as pizza delivery workers, sandwich makers, them being cramped in an apartment with my mom's parents and grandparents, kind of just trying to make the American dream happen. And from those experiences that my parents always kind of passed on to me and my sisters, they always valued how important education is. And that's why they always ultimately saw education as the golden gate to let you assess the ranks of society. And we always felt how important it was to study hard, make our education a big priority and kind of rise up those ranks. So we always had my dad tell us how he studied on the floors of Barnes and Noble or Borders and stole, not stole, but, you know, read the newest and latest programming books. He snuck into SF State's programming classes and my mom also took some extension courses just to really grind and study. So growing up, we felt like we had that kind of pressure coming from them, but also ourselves of like, hey, we need to make our parents' immigration worth it in some way. So there was that kind of pressure that we wanted just to succeed. Mm -hmm. And part of growing up in a triplet in that realm is you always have somebody to compare yourself to. So if I'm doing better at a subject or if my other two sisters are doing better in a certain either subject or sport or activity, we're, we're always asking ourselves, like, why can't we be as good as the other one? So we always have this friendly level of competition of trying to level up to each other. I think that's made us strive to be 
better and work harder and constantly up level ourselves. So that was a really a big, I guess, what's the right word? It formulated into who we are today and who I am today. So big formative experience. Thanks for sharing those stories. And it sounds like, you know, job partners have a huge influence in terms of forming your work ethic for you and your sister as well. I'm just curious, how's your relationship with your sisters throughout high school and growing up? And even these days, you mentioned like competition a little bit. How does that actually, you know, looks like, um, yeah. like even now, you probably grown up and had your own individual decision to make, right? We're very close there. I, I see this constantly. They're my best friends. I actually just moved into a building in, that they live in. So in San Francisco. So I think it's very unusual. We always have our friends say, you know, it's so unusual how close you guys are. I usually fight with my sister or brother. And it's it's so darling how you guys are all very close. And I, I don't know anything else. We finish each other's sentences. We know kind of the best and worst parts of each other. And we kind of we share very similar ambitions. So they really understand who I am and kind of vice versa. And it seems like what are your sisters also working in tech? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, we're all working in tech. We all majored in similar fields. We shared classes together. We roomed in college together. So we all are interested in kind of in data in some way, but we all interact with data kind of differently in our day-to-day jobs. Absolutely. Let's talk about college. So you went to... You see Berkeley to study data science and in economics, I believe. And from what I read on Berkeley website, the data science major incorporates technical foundation and the study of human context and ethics, along with more than two dozen domain emphasis. Can you share a little bit about your experience being part of Berkeley's first cohort of data science major and maybe what are some of your favorite courses taken? Sure. Yeah, the data science major is a very unique major. When I came into Berkeley at first, I was a computer science major and because my father had a background in software engineering and did a lot of that, we grew up in Silicon Valley. There was a big push for women to go into computer science or something technical. And in my first year, I definitely tried out computer science and software engineering. I did mobile development, didn't love it. So I will still, I knew it coming back my second year and beyond when I had to choose a major I wanted to stay technical, but still figuring out a way to do that without being a computer science major. And there was this new class called Introduction to Data Science, which you programmed in Python, but for somebody that loves math, you also did statistics. And there was some data analysis related to economics in there too. So data science felt like it encapsulated all of my interests. So that's why I kept going that way. Although there wasn't any data science major until my last, very last semester at Berkeley. So instead, I took all the coursework that I thought would be a data science major, like statistics, economics, programming classes. So just by my luck, at the end of my tenure at Berkeley, the last semester science major became a feasible public major. So I quickly <laughs> I rushed to the registrar and changed my major because I had that coursework that I anticipated it would be in the data science major made up of, you know, the computer science, statistics, economics classes. And yeah, the data science major then was kind of an amalgamation of a bunch of different classes, whereas now it's becoming more and more of its own department with its own distinctive classes. So it's really cool just to see that grow within the last three years from people younger than me graduating with data science degrees. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. It seems like the program at Berkeley, well, besides like the core technical 
classes in, in CS and start in math, it, it seems like it also have an emphasis on the human social and institution and structure mm-hmm. and practices that shape technical work around computing data, right? Can you share a little bit about like some of the classes that are non-technical, but still within your majors that you really enjoy? Yeah. Loved the data ethics class. That was a requirement to graduate. And I think it's so important for any technical major to take an ethics course, just to contextualize how the work you're doing and the work you will be doing on the job relates to impacting people. You definitely want to be careful with things like data privacy and what data can we glean from user behavior, for example, or uh, like sensitive data to not impact people negatively. It's just a very relevant class. There's data privacy has been something that's been studied for many years, many decades. It just comes in different forms with different generations and different technologies. So with things like Cambridge Analytica and the whole Facebook news story, that stuff has been done before, but with the Pima Indians being basically tricked into not really consenting to have their bio data used in a study with the National Institute of Health in the 60s, something like that. So there's things that go like this throughout time. And I thought that was really cool just to have somebody, a historian, teach you that just to recognize that. So really recommend that class. I think it was history C186 or 186D, something like that. Awesome. For sure, data ethics has become more and more a pressing topic for a lot of practitioners to, to learn about. Besides academic, you also took part in other professional activities throughout your undergrad. For instance, you were involved with the mobile developers at Berkeley and the uh, data science societies at Berkeley. So can you share some details uh, about these student-run organizations? Yeah. Um, mobile developers at Berkeley was when I was still interested in potentially being a software engineer as a career. So that was really interesting just to see how to make an iOS app from ideation to app store. And I made, in a team of four, I made an app called Yumfeed, which was basically Instagram, but just for food and ingredients and baking um, and cooking. That was just a very creative endeavor and was difficult and intense, but it was well worth it just to see how things are made on the iPhone, the thing I use all the time. The Data Science Society, that was more of a data science consulting club. One of the projects we had was we made a data model in a team of six or so to try to predict cryptocurrency prices. I didn't know anything about crypto. I heard it was something thrown around. And I mean, it's so huge now, but in 2000, I think it was 18 or 17 when I joined, it was still kind of up and coming. So even though the cryptocurrency price prediction model that we made was kind of futile, you can't really predict crypto prices that well. I still learn a lot about the industry of crypto and web scraping. I've never, I never did any web scraping before. Um, and it was just helpful to meet new people across campus and learn how to operate in a new type of team. So that's the whole point of joining a technical club, I think. So it was fun. That seems like you got some got the opportunity to work on right? like this is like sort of side projects during undergrad, which is like yeah. a huge thing for not just like job but also just for exploring interest as well, right? And around this time, like data science was you said you were one of the first cohorts. So I'm just curious, what is like general interest of the undergrad student body at Berkeley about this new field? Is there a lot of people who want to go into it? Uh, what is the general perception from your yeah. and peers? Yeah. I think it's become one of the top three most popular majors at Berkeley. 
I need to check my sources on that, but it definitely, you know, all the people that weren't so jazzed about computer science or economics, they, a lot of them do flock to combine both of those patterns and interest in data science. And because data science also, the data science major allows you to combine data science plus an interdisciplinary field. I think that's very unique and people want to explore things like Russian literature coupled with data science or sociology or mechanical engineering coupled with data science. So I think it's like a very flexible major, which makes it really, really popular. Usually people have a problem and interest and then they use data to solve that. I think yep. that combination of data with that domain expertise is just what makes them uh, interesting. Yeah. Sure. You can combine data, you can apply data to anything. So that's the magic of it. For sure. Besides studying and, you know, being a part of this you know, student-run organization, you also participate in a variety of like external like, initiatives, such as doing research at the Citrus and Banatown Institute, sitting on the leadership board of the TAMI group, and being an Excel scholar. How did these programs affect your Berkeley experience? I loved all of them they're, because they're so different from each other. Not one of these areas overlapped with each other, like in terms of the people I met or the content. So Citrus was doing user research for developing a mobile app for the city of Vallejo, which is a city you know, not too far from us. So that was a mix of civics and technology and app design. Tamid Group, that was consulting for Israeli startups. And Israel, of course, is a startup nation. So there's a lot of startups to pick from. And that's involving yourself with one, foreign business leaders, and also working with up and coming radically new technology in the startup space. So working with startups is way different than working with a big corporation. There's a lot less bureaucracy. It's a lot more direct. I was VP of consulting of Tamid Group. And so I learned how to source the companies that we consulted for, formed the relationships, kept on top of the project managers, assigned groups and teams to work together. So it was a lot of people management, which I really like, just to get some you know ducks in a row and whip everyone into shape. So I really enjoyed that experience. And Excel Scholars, that was more of a mentorship program with a group of you know 25 or so of my peers at Berkeley within the computer science, data science community. And that was a mentorship done by Amit Kumar, who's a venture capitalist at a firm called Excel, which is one of the most premier Silicon Valley venture firms. And I was actually introduced to Ironclad through Excel Scholars. So Excel Scholars is a great peer and mentorship community that I really, really thoroughly enjoyed. It sounds like for all these activities, you make a new connection and picking up relevant skill set, which might benefit later on for your career. I mean, I suppose at the time you just expose your interest, expose your curiosity. Right? Yeah, exactly. That's what they're all, these experiences are all about. <laughs> okay, yeah. And uh, on top of all of that, we also complete three uh, separate summer internships throughout our undergrad at Berkeley, mobile development at Ring Central, business intelligence at Seeker Technology, and data analytics consulting at Deloitte. What were the top three valuable lessons that you have learned from uh, these internships? Yeah, as I was saying before, I think in the previous point that we discussed, it is super important to try a bunch of different roles if you're unsure. I was unsure if I wanted to be a mobile developer, a consultant, a data analyst. So I did all of them and all of them were super informative of what I did and didn't want to do. Things I could see myself doing long term. So if the internship felt like a lot of 
the labored work and every day felt long and not passionate, I couldn't see myself doing that. And I felt the most passionate in the data analytics internship. So I knew I had to do that. So one is to try a bunch of different roles. Two is to make expectations of what success looks like very clear with your manager. You want to set out on the, in, on the onset of your internship, always have a benchmark of what success looks like and what your deliverables are expected of you at the end of this summer internship so that you make sure to hit those and go above and beyond. And then third would be to form a really close bond if you can with your manager, because you'll never know if that person will be your sponsor or coach you and recommend you to your future internship or return offer or a future full-time job, or, you know, if they can tap their network to get you onto a certain project or another job at another company entirely, like they have hopefully a big network and a big say in your success. So if you get on their good side, <laughs> I think that's really valuable and just be genuine about it as well. That's to say, hopefully your manager is a good person. Um, it can be a lot harder if they aren't, but yeah, look before you even join an internship, just like make sure to look out for somebody who can be your manager, who you can potentially bond with. Just out of curiosity, like this internship experience, when you were doing them, did you notice any major differences from what you learned in school? Did you see like some of the knowledge that you acquired from classes? Does that translate directly into your work or you have to like pick up new stuff on the fly? I think you have to pick up new stuff on the fly a lot of the time. The work that I do in school, is a lot of it is very theoretical. We're not taught how to really do slides or present or present your data in a very corporate way. We present things in reports and long-winded, long-form answers or on tests and finals. And that's not what the real world is like at all. You have to transform your work into human-readable content so and human-interactive content. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is learning about corporate culture and what's right and what's wrong and the right cadence of asking questions versus doing your homework versus speaking up in meetings versus leading meetings, you know, things like that. So I think they're both very complementary experiences. Like you have to have the background and training in order uh, from school in order to do your job on an internship or full-time job, but they don't really overlap. You need like one for the other. Thanks for providing that opinion. Mm-hmm. So what I noticed is like out of all these three internships, you work at quite a big organization. You know, I think most of them at the public are like very big companies. But then after graduating from UC Berkeley in the summer of 2019, you uh, decided to accept a data analyst position with uh, Aaron Cloud, which is a Series D at this point, digital contracting startup, building software to take legal teams to the next level. Now, regarding to that period, of time, you know, what was your rationale behind the decision to join a venture-backed startup, given that, you know, most of your previous experience were with large organizations? Yeah, well, the big organizations, they have more of a capacity to onboard very young folks, like people very early in their career, whereas a startup kind of just you get thrown in the deep end and there's a huge learning curve. And that's kind of what excited me. The initial experience is I wasn't actually looking for a startup. I was initially kind of scared of joining a startup and all the horror stories you hear about, you know, in the early days of a startup, you're sleeping at your desk, you work crazy hours, 
It's very, very difficult. There's no work-life balance. And I always thought I wasn't qualified enough to do this right out of college. I felt like I had to earn my stripes before I can contribute anything to a startup because startups are notoriously a lot less handholdy, whereas at big companies, you have a lot of mentorship and onboarding and training. So I thought I wasn't cut out, but this was such a unique opportunity at Ironclad that my mentor Amit brought to me. Ironclad was, you know, a really hot young startup. It was series A when I was first talking to them and they were offering to create this role of the very first data analyst just for me. And that was so exciting that I could not say no, because one, that would be such a huge growth opportunity. Like no matter how the startup flipped or flopped, even if it failed, that's still such a big growing opportunity. And I'm young enough where it's okay to take that kind of risk. So I just thought I had to do it. And after I interviewed with the folks that I did interview with, I thought, wow, they were phenomenal. They're so humble, smart, have a good head on their shoulders and very welcoming. So I thought hands down, like I'm, I'm coming to Ironclad. Like, it's happening. Let's just jump right into the pool. Yeah. I think like, you know, joining startup is one of those things where, you know, there's limited downside and, and massive upside, right? Because if you like, you know, maybe the company is not even do well, you still learn a lot because you're wearing multiple heads and then the church should grow. If you grow with the company, which we're going to talk about later on, you know, take on a lot more responsibility and picking up skills that you, that you never imagined that you could be able to take on as a fresh college grad. Just out of curiosity, like your peers, are they also join startups or are they join big organization? And, and what, what are some of those conversations with your friends like in terms of choosing uh, the first job out of school? Yeah. Within my Excel Scholar cohort, a lot of them do join startups or mid-sized companies. Very few join really big companies. And amongst my friends, a lot of them do go to those really big consulting companies or just big companies in general. But we're at that point where we're around two years out of school. And a lot of them are jumping to startups and smaller companies where they feel like, you know, they've gotten the training. It's time for something new and interesting. And I like that trend of them going to kind of the tech startup land. Yeah. Sounds like you are ahead of the curve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, let's uh, dig into the technical and business problems that Aaron Cloud is solving. First, can you provide a brief explanation of digital contracting for the uninitiated? Yeah. So digital contracting means that the entire contracting lifecycle lives in a browser-based system or product or app, which is Ironclad. And the contract lifecycle starts from, you know, contract creation to, you know, contract editing, contract approving, sending emails and communication between different counterparties to signing to actually archiving and, you know, storing the completed contract into a repository. And Ironclad does all of this in one system. Before digital contracting was kind of in this disparate universe of, you know, a contract lives in X system, but you're communicating over email, you're archiving things in a different storage system, you're interacting with things in Salesforce, but there was nothing unifying digital contracting. And Ironclad is kind of that first flexible platform to unify everything. You know, the negotiations, the operational insights, the editing experience, the contract creation, everything's very flexible and it's built for the in-house legal team at companies. 
it's not meant for lawyers at law firms because those people, you know, charge by the minute. Um, it's meant for people within really successful tech companies and beyond to execute contracts really quickly and efficiently and get the most people onboarded efficiently as possible. Absolutely. In-house legal team working at tech companies, that is mm-hmm. like a very specific user persona. Yeah. Um, well, was- not just tech. It started as in-house legal at tech companies only, but you know, it's going to all kinds of companies. And there's kind of this trend of people saying all companies are tech companies mm-hmm. at some point right now. So that's why I'm trying to generalize. But you know, we serve all kinds of industries like biology, biotech, tech, real estate, law, finance, everything. I'm just curious, like over your time working at Aaron Cloud, do you have like conversation with customers at some point? Like what is like the type of thing that these legal professionals are dealing with on a day-to-day basis? And put at what point at their journey that they need like a solution like Aaron Cloud? Yeah, I've talked to customers a lot, specifically because my role is in analytics. I talk to customers specifically about their data reporting needs. And Ironclad is currently working on a really good solution for in-house legal teams to report on their efficiency metrics to executives of their companies. Because legal is often seen as a cost center. And, you know, you need legal for everything in a business, whether you're hiring somebody, whether you're trying to market or sell something, whether you're trying to get IP out there and you need a patent. So legal is at the center of the business, if you think about it. And legal needs to show their value. And how do you do that? How do you show legal's value? So Ironclad needs to come in and show the data to like report to the our customers like, hey, you know, your team increased your legal contract loads by this much quarter over quarter, or your efficiency is going down, which, or your efficiency is going up, meaning the time you spend to review a contract is going down for X, Y, and Z contracts. So we need to illustrate efficiency and load increasing on the legal teams. And we need to illustrate that. And how do you do that with good reporting? So, yeah. That's a big pain point that a lot of legal teams in-house need. I see. Making legal first-class citizens. Yeah, exactly. This is like one of those use cases where, you know, it's it's very unsexy, but but like this massive total addressable market. um, Exactly. Where, where, you know, if you solve it efficiently with with server, then you can gain so many enterprise organizations to join, right? Exactly. I was, you know, just taking a look at the website of Iron Cloud, and it seems like the main product is called Contract Classical Management, and it includes a variety of features, you know, including security and compliance, AI, sandbox, workflow designer, editor, and uh, dynamic repository. Would you mind giving the listeners uh, just a tour of the Iron Cloud's product offerings? Yeah, I'll try to do some of them and not all because I'm not a huge expert on some of the earlier ones, like the AI and security and compliance stuff. But yeah, Sandbox is for, you know, people who are prospects of Ironclad demoing the platform before buying Ironclad. So it's basically almost like a fully fleshed out Ironclad instance, but it's, you know, used as a way to onboard yourself before buying the product just to test it out. Workflow Designer is our main contract designer platform. You create all of your contracts in there, configure them in however way you want. So that, you know, when you're trying to create and launch a new contract for, you know, 
some process, it's very easy. It's already configured, ready to deploy with a drop-down button, like start contract. For editor, editors are a main collaboration engine that during you know the review step where you're approving things, sending things back and forth with your counterparties, editor helps you edit your contract while preserving a lot of the data. You can, you know, comment in the activity feed, like, hey, I just submitted these edits and you can quickly, we call them red lines. Like when you edit a contract, they're called, you know, with a red pen, you redline thing. Um, you do that in Ironclad. So anything like quickly editing something, uploading a new version, that's all in the editor. And then dynamic repository is once you're done with a contract, once it's approved, edited, signed, you need to store it somewhere so that you can look up the metadata of that contract later. So if a renewal is coming up or if you need to do some search of an important clause, you can do that in a dynamic repository. So that's kind of the very short answer to this question. Most of these product was being built over the past few years. So you, you saw the evolution of the product over time, right? Yeah, totally. It's crazy how fast we are at churning out really good new products and improving on our features as they are. I see. Just from the description, it's just like it's it a very UI-centric slash collaborative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, our to, UI right? is so, it's so clean. I love looking at it. It's <laughs> kind of like the apple of all of the digital contracting land. So I couldn't imagine a lawyer who used to Microsoft Word yeah. to work with such a nicely SaaS product like this. Totally. Yeah, we're trying to modernize the legal tech stack. Fabulous. Assuming to your specific role of running um, a one-woman data analytics team at the company, and you mentioned like the company basically created this role for you when you join. My understanding is that you have been building the uh, analytics function from scratch and providing data insights to inform this decision uh, cross-functionally. As a new instigator within the company, how did you prove your value upfront in getting buy-in from your college on the power of data analytics? Yeah, it was very nerve-wracking at first. I started out as a data analyst embedded on one of the product teams. We had three at the time. So I did some analysis on the workflow designer team and that role quickly grew into doing more product analytics for the rest of the product teams, the repository and the editor team. And then, that work kind of grew and grew more into doing analytics work for both the product teams and also the customer success team. And eventually it just became like, Jessica's the data person for all kind of analysis ad hoc. Not that there's no one doing data analysis before, we definitely have data adjacent people in the operations department, like our sales ops analysts, our marketing ops analysts, but there was nothing like unifying them. So having like a data analyst that's purely sitting in that role was new. And and I still mostly sit in the product and customer success realm. To get buy-in, I mean, it's just, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit, I think, early on. I think everyone was very data-hungry. Ironclad at that point was using data very heavily. A month before I joined, we just hired our first project manager, and then we onboarded two more. So the data team was growing, or sorry, the project management team was growing. And they were, you know, trying to understand usage and adoption patterns. And as their requests grew, there was kind of like cross-pollination, socialization of my work across customer success. And customer success, whenever, I mean, 
you know, project managers interact with engineers and engineers are technical enough to pull their own data sometimes, but customer success needed a quick solution to get data on customers very efficiently as our customer numbers were just increasing our list of customers. So we can't scale the customer success organization linearly with the amount of customers we have. We needed a data tool or something like a dashboard to allow customers, customer success managers to quickly look into the dashboard and see how their customers are doing very quickly. Or that would take hours to do. But I quickly created a dashboard that served all of their needs in terms of getting a very detailed view of a customer's product usage data. And that like blew up. That was, I think, one of the big catalysts of having that buy-in that you're talking about of the company seeing the value of data. So that one saved, you know, a huge amount of stakeholders time and two, it illuminated insights really quickly. So I think those are the big takeaways into getting buy-in, showing that value. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the details. And we're going to talk about like some of those ideas about getting low-hanging fruit, socializing with your value later on. But it seems like at this point, when you first started the company, you were super open-minded about the type of problem that cross-functional team have and thinking about ways to using analytics of solving them, right? I'm just curious about the mindset that you have at this point. Maybe like paint a vivid picture for the listeners of like, what are some of the things that go into your head about trying to prove your value? Yeah, I worked pretty standard hours. I'm just good at time management. Usually was typically working a nine to five, nine to six type of schedule because I was trying to prioritize my mental health and my physical health. You know, I went to the gym afterwards or like exercise. So I think that's very important. I had a manager that understood time management or like my time was protected at night. So yeah, I didn't spend too much overtime. I think it's just important to be efficient within the workday that you are usually allotted. So yeah, I think it's just about having weekly goals. Well, the way I managed time was I had my weekly goals charted every week and then daily goals. So I wanted to like cross out very specifically things that bubbled up from a daily level to a weekly level. So I just got really good at that and prioritized my Google calendar to accommodate that. So enough to create balance. Right. Goal setting is hugely important throughout that early first few months. And impactful projects that you contributed to is Ironclad's first legal analytics benchmark report, analyzing economic trends caused by COVID-19. So can you walk through the end-to-end data analysis process for this report? And then also like, what are some of the interesting economic insights that you found out from working on it? Yeah, love to. Our CEO, Jason Baymig, always likes to say that our business, Ironclad's business is counter-cyclical because you know, whenever there's a big boom and bust in the economy, contracts are always at the center of it because they, you know, contracts are the atomic unit of business, as we also like to say, and when they're needed everywhere. If a business is booming, you know, contracts like sales agreements, marketing, influencer agreements, things like that, they're all booming. They're all off the charts. In a downturn, like we saw with COVID, things like an amendment to a contract or termination notices or vendor agreements, you know, people are scaling back their benefits or catering <laughs> their companies or their leases, you know, those are increasing because you have to adapt to the changing times. And how do you do that without, you know, involving a contract? So we saw that 
you know, we wanted, there was this kind of impetus to see how is Ironclad responding to these economic times during the early times of COVID? And we just started with a guiding question. And I looked through my dashboards just to investigate some hypotheses I might have about how, you know, users and customers of Ironclad were responding with their product usage data. So I had those hypotheses. I looked at crafting a narrative with the dashboard and data that I could muster up. And then after that, we worked with product marketing to kind of craft a cohesive narrative as to, okay, you know, we found 10 different insights that all say these kind of different things. How do we want to create a story around it? And if you see the economics report, it crafts like a nice story, like with contracts, you know, saving the day and being at the center of business agility. And within that report, we found that, you know, amendments spiked, contract review times majorly increased because, you know, lawyers are trying to really understand the fine text before they sign anything, because this really could be a matter of life and death of a business. We found that force majeure clauses, which means it's a special clause that a contract has a force majeure clause that, you know, says you can cancel a contract in the occurrence of a crazy outstanding event like COVID-19. We saw those searches increase. We saw repository usage increase. We just saw people majorly having to pivot their business, whether it was to go through really tough hiring and firing decisions or pausing their sales and, you know, figuring out contingency plans, Ironclad had to be in the center of it. So, yeah. And after we created a narrative, we just edited the design of the report and we worked a lot with, yeah, again, marketing and design all at the center and having me approve kind of the data side of things. And we published it. Thanks for sharing that process of how an actual analytics project looks like in the real world. Um, yeah. And I'll be sure to include the links to the report in your show notes. So anyone that's interested can take a look, you know, download and see it. I loved mixing data and economics again, or just, you know, in the real world. It's not a true economic paper. It's not, a, you know, written by economists or PhDs, but it's something to be consumed by the everyday person while still illustrating those key economic trends. Absolutely. So last year, you got promoted to the second level of data analysis role. As a result of this, you took on new responsibilities ranging from um, defining NOSTA metrics for product teams to evaluating new BI tooling for self-serve analytics usage across Cloud. What have been some of your big learning curves to deal with these additional projects in the past year? Yeah, just a big thing overall is that I there's not a whole lot of oversight. I don't have directly an data analytics manager. My manager was the VP of product and now it's the VP of engineering. So I don't have a true idea of like what good data, like what great data analytics practice looks like from somebody who's way more senior than I do. I have an idea of what good deliverables look like in general from those VPs who are my bosses. But I think it's really hard to define your own data analytics specific goals and self-motivation is always kind of a balancing act. And a way to temper this, I think, is I reach out to some senior data analytics folks on LinkedIn and just have those conversations like, hey, what is your experience when you were early on in your career? Any advice? What kind of analysis do you do? Just to get more specific advice. 
because both my managers had backgrounds in engineering and not so much the data side of things. So it's helpful to get that outside perspective as well as combining, you know, my current manager's perspective with leadership and stakeholder management, kind of the soft skills. So I think like reaching out and expanding your network is a big key way to kind of temper that big learning curve. And have you been finding those, you know, this conversation with the broader data community useful for your own learning journey? Yeah, I try to have them once a month or something like that. And then I have a Google Doc where I take notes with every one of my mentors and people that I meet with. And I store them on my career and development Google Doc. And I refer to them sometimes whenever I need to. I always find I leave each conversation finding at least one new interesting thing that I kind of like a new piece of advice that I associate with that person. For example, I met with this awesome data scientist named Shay and he always, he, one thing that stuck with me is that you need to over, it's better to over communicate kind of your workload with your manager so that they can not micromanage you. And I never thought of that. And then another, you know, data analytics manager, Gabrielle at Facebook, she said, you know, you got to be selfish, hire an intern um, to help you with your data work. So there's things that like really stick with you. And I've tried to implement at least one thing from each of those conversations in my day-to-day life. It's impossible to do everything that they ask, you know, I'm only one person with only so many hours in the day, but I think cherry picking what each one of them provides is still really useful. I see. Well, first of all, you have a career development Google Doc. That is already super proactive. Um, yeah. I think by reaching out people for advice, it definitely shows that, you know, like the hunger for learning because people have different backgrounds and sometimes the advice doesn't translate, you know, directly in, in, into your role. But I think in general, you can generalize a lot of those uh, conversations. And like you said, try to pick the one that is most applicable for your current role, right? Yeah. And I think it's so important to grow your network in your space and whatever field you are in. You shouldn't grow your network when you need it. You, you should grow your network before you potentially need to use it potentially for, you know, to find your next job opportunity. So I think those conversations are very organic and that's why people agree to them because I'm not like trying to do one of those sleazy phone calls where I'm just like at the end of the phone call, ask for a job. I definitely did do that in college where I kind of regret. But I think forming that organic relationship is way more mature yeah i think there was like a saying when you know when you ask for a job people give advice when you ask for advice people give, give you a job so it's really about like having an open mindset and we really know gender be, be, be a learning machine and things like that sure so you get this excellent talk about uh, building a data analytics culture from the ground up at the women in product conference last year and uh, in particular you shared a three-level framework that explain specific strategy in order to first building a data mvp Second, socializing and iterating with data interests cross-functional teammates. And third, uh, scaling analytics to innovate faster. So yeah, can you uh, unpack some of the key takeaways presented in that talk? Yeah, I think with building a data MVP, it's similar to what product managers or engineers go through. You have to think like one of those good product managers. You have to build a first iteration of your data deliverable quick enough so that, you know, while also paying attention to the usefulness of that deliverable to your stakeholder. So if somebody comes up to you like, hey, I want to explore this problem, have a quick way to jot down the requirements and 
create a very first iteration, like whether it's, you know, writing the SQL code to make a table appear and ask your stakeholder, hey, is this schema okay? Like before I begin anything advanced, how do we like this project as it's trending? Is this okay? Having those check-ins and brainstorm is really good before you do any advanced analysis off of it. So that's the data MVP, minimum viable product. The second point is to socialize that MVP to a cross-functional group. Because when you meet with a cross-functional group, they're probably going to have data questions and insights that will cause you to think in a new way that you haven't thought of before and therefore enhance your analysis. It'll help you also build your credibility with your coworkers because one, you're socializing your work in front of a bigger group of people and they'll know you as like the data person, which I've found in my experience. And then that's the socialization part, you know, building on top of your data MVP, gaining more insights, gaining a more robust analysis. And then the final point was to scale that analytics to something more advanced. Like once you've developed your kind of intermediate step of adding, you know, the different features to your project, you want to either automate that or make it an advanced analysis like using data science modeling as opposed to doing like data analytics. So once you've iterated through the data multiple times in your MVP and gathered inspiration from your cross-functional stakeholders, you're ready to kind of productionize the data science or analytics you're working on. And an example that I brought up in my women in product talk was my churn model analysis. That started as just like a couple of columns we brainstormed on a whiteboard virtually. You're like, hey, what features and product usage predict churn of a customer? So we jotted something down. We started with analysis. I did my MVP. Then I met with a cross-functional group of product and customer success folks. And they taught me like, oh, you need to think of this. <laughs> like you actually missed this stuff. Or this is great, but how can we push it further? So then I took their feedback and then wrote up a decision tree data science model to predict with 90% accuracy customers that would churn in the next quarter and which features, meaning like product usage patterns, most indicated churn. So that's kind of just like an example of front to end analysis, but that was a really fun project to illustrate that talk. And I'll be sure to include the YouTube link into the show notes. So anyone interested can watch what Jessica just just talked about. You actually share a bunch of different stories on how each of these steps within this framework manifests itself in the work at Aaron Cloud from working with customer success to informed product development to defining a new data-driven pricing strategy to retaining customers with that example. Yeah, just out of curiosity, like at this stage of the company, did you think like Aaron Cloud is ready for scaling analytics? And how do you envision the analytics function looking in the next like few quarters? Yeah, we're going to definitely try to scale it out. We're going to try to hire a data engineer. We, I'm going to get soon a new boss who's going to be, I think, the VP of data and infrastructure. I've also hired an intern. Ultimately, I think the data team might grow a little bit slow. We first need to still productionize a lot of our data analytics and data science. And once we have the basis and foundation of like a senior leader leading that, I think it'll be so apparent that data science needs to be scaled out in Ironclad to the same level that, you know, software engineers are embedded on product teams. So yeah, I think maybe not in the 
next couple quarters, the scaling will happen, but it'll happen within the next couple of years. We're in the phase of adding key hires right now. If that makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. So besides building out the data analytics culture, you also have been taking initiatives to influence Ironclad's company overall culture, such as, you know, practice of embracing feedback to having a running list of wins at work to even studying a study group for women to learn SQL. What advice could you give for individual contributors who want to positively influence their company culture? Yeah, I think what's helped me is I'm a kind person and I also have an opinion. So I, I mean, early on when you're first onboarding to a company, you're still on kind of that phase where it's scary to go into meetings and talk. But over time, I developed kind of the confidence to have a seat at the table and be dependable when somebody's talking through some potential analysis that they want to explore. And I volunteer to do it. Like, I'm like, okay, you know what? That's a very interesting question. I'll get back to you on that analytics. How about, have we thought about it in this way? So-and-so. So having an opinion and having a voice and being dependable when you kind of go back and do that analysis, have a good write-up, socialize those analytics in a Slack channel or something within a quick turnaround time, I think builds a good culture of people. One, seeing that the work you do is dependable and quick and two, that you're open and very nice to kind of work with and you're not like a data silo is important to prove out. You want to you know, be approachable in terms of having your coworkers ask you for data. So in order to drive a data-driven culture, you want people to be asking for data. You don't want them to be scared of it. So, yeah. You brought that part about like having documents ready and shared with college. Is written communication an important part of our class culture? Yeah. You said just communication in general or written? Written. I think in this remote world, a lot of things have to be written down via Slack just to make sure nothing falls through the cracks. I do think it's kind of a balance. It's not like a huge, you know, ironclad is only written culture. I think it's important to have those in-person meetings face-to-face and document the work that you do. So, yeah. So let's take off your data hat and put on your community hat. Last year, you and your sister, Diana, created the Data Angels community, which is a Slack community connecting women interested in data to resources for support, education, and opportunities. My question is twofold. First, what are some of the existing challenges that prevent young women from pursuing a career in data? And second, what do you think like, you know, a community like, like Data Angels is, is needed? Yeah, I think from a young age, women are discouraged from science and math and kind of we're socialized to see those subjects as male dominated. And when we're socialized to see that it's male dominated, it kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of just more men in the field by default. And I think women are kind of scared to break in the boys club sometimes. And for me, I'm a very headstrong person. Like I really enjoy being proud of my work ethic and showing people that I can do things too. Like I can show the boys that I'm good at math or like, you know, with hard work, I can be a good data scientist or data analyst. So I think having cultivating that confidence in a safe space is hugely important. And to see other women doing that, 
and setting a good example is why data angels is needed. It's a safe space for, you know, around it's over 300 women now in data to learn from each other in this like very chill Slack community where we have fun sharing our experiences and resources and opportunities like job postings. And we even have data, ask me anything panels. So I think it's just nice to have kind of this community where you can see other people like you and have that genuine bond with people. Like community building is something that I'm definitely interested in. I'm just curious to hear your, your playbook. So what are some of the tactical strategy that you have used to kickstart and engage the community members within the angels? Yeah, I think it's still something I'm figuring out. I'm by no means a community wizard. I think it's really hard to sometimes maintain momentum. Like a Slack group is, our, our Slack group is meant to be a very chill community. And with that, you know, some people can maybe forget about the Slack community, but I try to bring people in like having panel events. We call them AMA panels, ask me anything. And I organize a group of usually like five different speakers relating to a topic that's, you know, of general interest to our community members. Like I'm trying to organize one right now in the next couple of weeks of careers after data analytics. How can, like, where do people go after their initial data analytics job? Do they go into, you know, project management, VC, uh, data science, things like that. So having those panels is really interactive. Like we go on Zoom, we just, we, we kick it. We're very honest and funny and people get a chance to all talk and ask their questions and see each other in person, well, virtually, but you see not just, you know, an icon on a screen, you see the person's face. Um, we also do donuts, which are those quick Zoom chats with the donut app in Slack. We also just keep sharing references and job opportunities and things like interesting articles. So just kind of a, it's a pretty passive, those are the kind of like the passive discussion points and community building parts. But I personally like seeing the people face-to-face on a screen, but you know, <laughs> either way. It seems like you focus on having honesty and not just like a career development group, but it's also more like a, like a support group where people sharing, you know, honest stories about like experience that they have with work and how do you getting a seat at the table, right? Yeah. And I think the people who are genuinely interested in the community will naturally bubble up to the top and will want to, you know, post and stay active and engaged. Mm -hmm. A great example of this is I posted a intern opening on my team for the summer and we had a response within a couple of minutes from somebody And she went through our whole hiring round and we hired her amongst a bunch of other interns that went through the hiring process. So it really showed just like how genuinely interested she was. And I'm so glad she came from the Data Angels community because that's what Data Angels is all about, like connecting people in the data community to opportunities and other like-minded data folks. So very exciting. And also like at the beginning, like when you decided to start this group, how do you find the first 10 or 20 people to invite them to the Slack group. How do you even find out folks you, you believe will have a positive role to play in shaping the norms of the community? The beginning of the group was just my friends from school, other women in data, people that I've connected with through over the years from internships. Another small group of them came from Twitter. So I think that was a solid ground. And then it just kind of amplified on Twitter, LinkedIn, 
and just like everyone's personal community like people wanted to join friends of friends wanted to join so it was really it was a nice kind of organic growth leveraging personal work and asking for and social and things like that to get more, more support if anyone who interested in either like connect or like join the group where, where would you suggest them to yeah. teach yeah dm me on twitter it's on my profile it's pinned at the very top like information about data angels so yeah feel free <laughs> to join if you're interested just another question about it. what's behind the name data angels yeah it just came from somebody at work calling me a data angel because i provided data i guess quickly and i blessed people with data i don't want to sound like arrogant or anything so but just somebody said that phrase and i was like huh that's such an interesting cute phrase i want to jo- i wanted to be as my title because before i was calling myself a data elf because i was just like you know worked behind the scenes and data angels definitely had a nicer ring to it and i wanted to kind of use it as my brand so that's where it came from yeah definitely a president i want to round up our main conversation on, on a fun note so it seems like you are very enthusiastic about the use of data for beauty and fashion So can you share a bit about the security pleasure and you know what are some applications intersection data and fashion that you are most excited about in the near future? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. This is something I'm really passionate about <laughs> because I just love just consuming makeup and fashion on in my personal life. When I was growing up, I was obsessed with and still am with fashion in the beauty industry and I wanted to be a fashion magazine editor like the devil Wears Prada or, you know, Anne Hathaway in the Double Wears Prada. But then my immigrant parents were like, no, sweetie, you gotta, gotta be a doctor or a lawyer or engineer, typical immigrant things. But that passion still stayed. And I'm glad that I found, you know, data analytics as a career path and, you know, field of study that you can still apply data to these things. You can apply data, as I said, to anything. In this virtual world, like I love the idea of applying data science to makeup and getting potentially like an application of this might be, you know, figuring out your correct foundation shade match on your skin because that's often wrong or trying on makeup virtually. In the fashion world, like, I mean, everyone knows Stitch Fix. That's like the most prominent data science plus fashion organization right now. I personally have never used it, although I do admire their data science blogs. Those are very well done. And it's really a great example of a data science org. For me, I, I would like to see something just a lot more simpler in my life. Like my day-to-day life is, you know, like I browse through different retailers' websites. I would just like a really good recommendation engine that points me to the clothes that I want to buy, like in the same way Netflix and YouTube recommend me content, like when I'm browsing, like I would just want that to just get really perfected because I haven't seen that yet. There's another app right now called the Yes app founded by an ex-stitch fixer named Julie Bornstein or Bronstein, I forget her name, but it's trying to solve for this problem. But right now I think it's limited to more designer retailers and not, you know, everyday ready to wear or like fast fashion, things like that, like H&M or Zara, not as much. It's becoming more and more prominent. I've seen some of their stuff, but I would just like, you know, natively in websites when I'm browsing that they have a really good recommendation engine. So yeah, like they know my style as if I didn't have to say anything about it. So yeah, that's kind of where I want to see it go. But, and I think it is possible with data. 
Absolutely. Funny you, you brought up some of these spies. I think I was watching like a presentation from a research scientist at, at L'Oreal, which I believe was one of the kind of Iron Cut as well. And he was yes. talking about... Love L'Oreal. Yeah, they, they have virtual trial on the product. They have an app where, you know, people can perform virtual trial on. And I think it's still in, in beta testing, but hopefully it come out beta soon so the more people can try it. Yeah, um, totally. I was attending this rework conference a couple of weeks ago on AI in retail. And there was a presentation from the data scientists at Grand the Runway and the Nostrum, where they were talking about recommendation system for recommending these kind of items. And definitely was so interesting to see the type of model being used, the type of features or data being put on those kind of models. Hopefully your wish, unlike getting the perfect clothing recommendation, can soon um, manifest itself in the near future. Yep. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Jessica, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. So number one, name three people in the data community whose work you admire. Okay, I'm ready. This is kind of a combo for the first slot, but Emily Robinson and Jacqueline Nolis, they have a great podcast and book called How to Build a Career in Data Science that I've listened to and I've read their book. I think it's fantastic. So definitely look up Emily Robinson and Jacqueline Nolis and get their book. Listen to their podcast. Second one is Cassie Kozrakov. She's the chief data scientist at Google. She's very famous in the data community. Like everyone knows her blogs, her writings. I'm sure you're like nodding. Um, And the third, I think someone also pretty famous in the data community is Shreya Shankar. She is currently a PhD and is engineering in residence at Amplify Ventures. But before she was the first ML engineer at Viaduct AI and the only one, I think. And then she was previously, you know, doing ML research at Google Brain and was at Stanford at the same time. So she's just a firecracker and powerhouse. And I don't know how she has time in her day to do all these amazing things, but those are all the really badass women in data that I really admire. That's a great recommendation for people who listen. I actually interviewed Shreya, I think, last year. So I put that in the show notes as well for anyone who's interested in hearing about my story. Second question, name one book that you would recommend for people to cultivate an analytical mindset. Yeah, I really loved Everybody Lies by Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Um, it's Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. I just think it's so interesting to write a whole book about people's Google's search terms and defining analysis from that. I think like you can predict elections, you can predict economic outcomes, you can predict the mental health state of certain individuals. It's just fascinating. So really recommend that one. And then lastly, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? This one's hard. I don't really have a great answer, but I would just say just keep swimming. Whenever I'm going through something really hard, I just like tell myself, like, just keep going at it. Just keep swimming like Dory from Finding Nemo. So, yeah, I would just recommend just sticking through it, trying your best and just keep swimming. Fabulous. Uh, That's a brilliant way to end our conversation. This is really Um, fun. Thank you for having me. I really enjoy learning about your journey from growing up in an immigrant family to being the first cohort of data science major at UC Berkeley to being the first data analyst at Aaron Platt. Some very interesting state of digital contracting, how to level up and building the data analysis culture from the crowd up to the, the data angels community and some of the interesting work that you've been 
cultivating in order to foster that growth. And be sure to include everything in the show notes so listeners can have a chance to take a look at some of the preferences that we talk about in our conversation and follow Jessica and some of the work that she's possibly contributing into the greater data community. Thank you so much. This is really fun. Thanks, James. Bye. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.